Hi everybody, Scott here, just popping by at the top of the show to sort of do a little bit of an introduction. It's quite a special show, this one. Um, My dear friend Anthony, who's been a frequent guest not only on Stinking Paws but Real Britannia uh, and the host of Glass Onion on John Lennon, Film Gold and Life and Life Only podcasts, came up with this wonderful idea a couple of weeks ago that we should get together to celebrate the 90th birthday of Sir Michael Caine, which is coming up next week on the 14th of March. So what you're going to listen to here now is part one of a two-part special where Auntie and I get together and we chat about the great man himself. Got a bit of a quiz in the middle of it. We've got our favourite performances, like a top ten rundown. We've got the turkeys, we've got the honourable mentions, we've got the dodgy impressions galore. So, in honour, as I say, of the great man himself, this is part one, celebrating the life and the films of Michael Caine. Part two, hopefully, Anthony, if, if you know he gets his finger out and gets the editing done like he said he would, will be with you on or before the 14th, just in time for the birthday. Hope you enjoy it. Take care. It's wonderful, actually, sitting here and listening to your talk, because, it, I mean, yours is, is the most impersonated voice in, in the business, isn't it? Oh, yeah, everyone Everybody does. I, I can do it. Can you do it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, my name is Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> I need, well, I'm finished yet. I'm finished yet. Not many people know that. <laughs> I sound like this bloody moron. <laughs> My name's Michael Caine. You know where they've got me now? On a... They have me on birthday cards, you know. Yes, when you're job. It's your birthday today. Not very people know it. <laughs> now, they've got me, uh, you know, on the uh, satellite navigation. Yeah. You know, where you're in the car, where yeah. you say, it's, it's me going, now I take the secretary and all that. And you'll wind up right in the shit. <laughs> If anybody's very, very good at sat nav with my, my, me giving instructions on it, I should watch out where you go. Everybody, welcome to a joint presentation, a swap cast, if you will, of the Film Gold and Stinking Paws podcast. And we're celebrating the life and films of Morris Joseph Micklewhite. And in case you're thinking, who the hell is that? Well, they probably not because you've seen the title of the podcast. He's better known by the name of Michael Caine, and he will be turning 90 on March the 14th. So he's just got to hang on for two more weeks. <laughs> Otherwise, this is going to be uh, another kind of tribute show, which we're yeah. hoping it isn't. But um, <laughs> we've just had Yoko Ono's 90th birthday. We just had Nina Simone, obviously posthumously, yes. turning 90. So three absolute icons. So for those in, in our two audiences who don't know who we are, so I'm Anthony Rituna. I've got three podcasts, Glass Onion on John Lennon, Life and Life Only, and Film Gold. My co-host here has four. Greedy. Yeah, which I'll get him <laughs> to introduce. Anyway, my co-host today, the wonderful podcasting legend, Scott Phipps. <laughs> How are you, mate? 
I'm very well, thank you, mate. Yeah, we're going to put this out on the Stinking Paws feed, but other listeners may know me as a guest on your show and the Real Britannia podcast, the Rainbow Valley podcast, the Rainbow Valley 60s chart show and co-host of the Talking Pictures TV podcast. Oh, yeah, five, four and a half. Yeah, keeps me off the streets, mate. Excellent. I've got to tell you, I'm so looking forward to this because I know we're both big Michael Caine fans. We bloody are, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Probably you even more than me, actually. But he's, he's up there in my, uh, you know, Brando's my top boy. But uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, I was prompted to do this by the fact that on Film Gold, we've only ever done film reviews, except we did a Brando special two years ago. But mm. the difference is that Brando made something like 40 films and arguably he phoned in about 15 of those. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas Mr. Kane, how many films has he done? Scott? It's... Creeping up to the 200, isn't it, I think, because they include these numerous uncredited yeah. bit parts in those early 50s things before a hilling career. And yeah. IMDb includes a lot of TV plays and things that he appeared in as well. Yeah, 175, I think, is the official wow. IMDb listing. But that's voices as well, you know, in cartoons and stuff like that. So. An incredible thing is he's just about to turn 90, but he's still working. I mean, hasn't he got two in the pipeline this year? I think, There's a not? thing coming out this year called Medieval, and I'm mm. praying to God that it's not his last movie because it looks absolutely <laughs> awful. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I want him to go out on a bang, you know, because he did this rotten thing on Sky last year called Twist which was right. a modern retelling of the Oliver Twist story. And he plays this modern Fagin. And again, absolute crap, you know. Oh so is he phoning these in for the money? You know, his last retirement mm. fund. I don't know. But I'm just hoping that somebody rings him up, Nolan or somebody, and says, look, come on, just do this for me before mm. you decide to put your slippers on, basically. I suppose it's like a boxer, isn't it? They can never quit while they're ahead. So if you take any boxer like Muhammad Ali, you know, the last few fights were just awful because he just hang on too long. So, yeah, you're right. All right. Yeah, you mentioned your podcast. So we've got Stinky Paws, Real Britannia. Those are film podcasts. Have you ever done any kind of specials like this or tributes or has it always been straight film reviews? Pretty much straight film reviews. I mean, Rainbow Valley, which is my 60s documentary. Episode 007 was on the birth of the James Bond movies and how Dr. No came about and i used that as a special on real britannia i slotted that into real britannia just because it, it fitted perfectly because of 60s movies you know but british movies i've done a commentary on jaws with yourself oh yeah, yeah. on the stinking paws i've done a documentary on it's a wonderful life on stinking paws as well usual format for me though with the movie podcasts is either yourself or my friends paul charlie whoever Stephen, mm. would come on board and we just chat and it's very informal this is probably the most structured podcast I've ever done because <laughs> you do like to be prepared. And, yeah. and it's no bad thing because mm. it makes us, well, it makes my job easier having mm. somebody in, in the opposite corner that's on the ball, knowing where we're going. And, and mm. you've thrown this structure out towards me and, and mm. I've held my hands up. I wrote my top 10 20 minutes ago. And I'm yeah. still not happy with it. It may change over the next two hours or so. Yeah. There's things I want to mention. There's things that daren't be mentioned. Yeah. They uh, will the be man's there. career was just a whole gamut of ups and downs. There's uh, some absolutely cracking stuff. There is some absolute turkeys, which we're going to focus yeah. on as well. And the man's an icon. What more can I say? You know, he's become a bit of a parody. 
but he's also one of the biggest icons of the 60s. You know, when people talk about the swinging 60s, mm. he's up there with like Mary Quant and the miniskirt and the mini, you know, mm. and all of those sort of things. It's Michael Caine. Yeah, I mean, I've just been caned up for the last two weeks. And it, it is <laughs> watching, I mean, I think I've seen probably eight or nine of his films in the last two or three weeks. Not quite one a night, but he's such a compelling presence. And there's a kind of warmth to him. I mean, there's a dark side to him, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get to a lot of the stories as we mm. discuss the films. By the way, just for the listeners, the centerpiece of this is going to be our counting down our top ten Michael Caine performances. But there's also, he's a bit like comfort food in a way. When, when I see him in a film, I kind of know I'm all right, you know, and I'm going to, there's not going to be too dark, although one of the ones in my list is very dark, but there's, there's something comforting mm, about him in a funny way. I don't know. You saying that there's a certain era of Caine movies that I try to avoid. It's, it's the era where he was just taking the money. And the films are not particularly brilliant. We're going to mention most of them as we go along. 10 years, 15 years almost, where it's Mm. just like, oh, Michael, what have you done? Mm. (laughs) He's bought a house. That's what he's done. He did. Exactly. And we'll tell that story at some point as well. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So apart from this uh, top 10 list, got a couple of other things planned. So we'll um, we'll go through these and then just let the magic happen, as we said. Okay. Right, let's start with his upbringing. So he's obviously a famously a Cockney. A quick question, actually. Is Cockney now a generic name for anyone from London, or is it a, or is it a part of London? Is he a Cockney? Uh, he's not a Cockney. He was born okay. five minutes down the road from me. Okay. St. Olaf's Hospital in Rotherhithe, and he was born 18 months after my father was born there. So my connection to him, his locality is, is pretty strong. You know, he was born literally in the same hospital as my father, round about the same sort of time. But he didn't actually live in Rotherhive. He lived a little bit further south in Kennington. You know where the Oval Cricket Ground is around yeah, that yeah. way? Famously where Charlie Chaplin was born and brought up. And then during the war, he was evacuated, I think, to Norfolk. And then when he That's came right. back, I think they got a prefab somewhere in South London, Camberwell. I think it was Camberwell. A traditional Cockney is born in, within the sound of Bow Bells. Bow Bells is right. the other side of the river. It's yeah. the East End. But, you know, for sake of ease... Technically speaking, you probably could hear the sound of bow bells from Rob Ivy on a on a very quiet day, you know. But yeah. <laughs> technically, he's reading them, I suppose. Yeah, technically he's not a cockney; he's a South Londoner. Well, it's a bit like um, obviously, you know, I have a connection to Liverpool through the Beatles. Scouse used to generally mean very guttural. That's all. Oh, right there, la. Mm. That kind of guttural Scouse, yeah. and a Scouser was probably, I suppose. Don't want to get in trouble, but maybe, I don't know, <laughs> a working class scally from Liverpool. But now they use the word scouser completely generically for anyone yeah. from Liverpool. So I, suppose I think that's what's thing. happening with Cockney, like you say. Yeah. So he did famously have a working class upbringing. You often find in um, people of that era when you read their biographies, it's that what's almost become a cliche of the, of the rent man appearing at the door. Mm-hmm. and uh, the family either hiding behind the sofa or the mother sending the children out to say that she's not in, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. That literally happened with him, did it, I mean, according to him? Yeah. The brilliant thing about Michael Caine is that many years ago he decided to write one of two autobiographies. So he told the story exactly how it happened. You know, we're not relying on second or third-hand knowledge. And I mentioned this to you off air, that the first of those, which is called What's It All About?, came out sort of early to mid 90s and it is on a par i would say with the david niven autobiographies which are widely regarded as two of the best hollywood stories there are and it's it's very similar you know because he's got that hollywood connection and he's got all the stories that he tells but also we get a bit of an insight into that background it wasn't 
particularly hard. It wasn't mm. a tough upbringing. Like if you read like Norman Wisdoms, which is absolutely frightening when you read what he's. Oh, is it? Wow. Oh, he was sleeping rough on the street from the age of like nine years old. You know, it was horrible, wow. horrible story. Norman Wisdoms upbringing, and it was only the army that saved him. You know, I think he joined the army at fourteen and become a bandsman, and that's how mm. he learned to play all the instruments and become a you know a comedian. Cause, but yeah, it was a typical South London rags to riches story almost. You know, but I think. Mm. You know, what was his first job? Was he like a market porter or something like that, which most people mm, would have been on sure. the docks and stuff like that? You know, it, it, it was that that sort of thing. He had money in his pocket growing up. You know, he wasn't mm. particularly hard up. It's just the fact, I think, that by the time he became an actor or a well-known actor, it was fairly uncommon for somebody of his background to be where he was. Yeah. The birth of the kitchen sink stuff, the angry young man movies open the doors mm. for working class actors, predominantly in the north originally, obviously. I mean, we're going to get into this, but once you get to Alfie, that's it. He's part of that swinging London scene and he's been his upbringing is brought into his performances, you know, in those early, early yeah. performances that we know and love. Yeah, I mean, when I'm on your film shows, we have this running joke that I bring in Beatles references, and it's become You've already brought in three. I know it's become a, sort of a challenge. <laughs> but with Michael Caine, I feel like it's entirely appropriate because it it fits. I mean, he was a okay, he was from the south mm-hmm. of England. I mean, meaning you know, south of Watford, so to speak. Yeah. Um, the Beatles were from the north, but they both had regional. You know, they both probably treated quite similarly. You know, the regional mm. accents. And as you said, it suddenly became, not only did it become acceptable, it became trendy, didn't it, for a while? Yeah. Um, was it you that told me, or it might have been Charlie or Stephen, I can't remember, that I think it's a quote from David Bailey, who, who said that the swinging 60s, as we yeah. know it, only really happened to about 200 people. Yes, that was from uh, Desert Island Discs. And yeah. I, I included that because I, I had my um, my dear mother, who's my biggest fan, mm. uh, on the show, on the Glass Onion show. And we talked about she was talking about how the 60s was just like any other time. Yeah. If, if you didn't live in that thing. But then I had Dan Richter, of course, uh, who was famously in 2001, A Space Odyssey. He told me that they did a Royal Albert Hall show and um, they got um, Alan Ginsberg to uh, mention it. Because Alan Ginsberg, I think, had, is something he'd been he'd been jailed or he'd been deported or something. Mm. And Dan said to him, well, while you're on TV being interviewed, can you mention we're doing this Royal Albert Hall thing? <laughs> And they were expecting just to break even, and they had to turn away thousands of people. Wow. They sold it out. So Dan Richter would say it was thousands. David Bailey said 200. But David Bailey in that interview was quite disparaging. Mm. Like he was making jokes about, I think, the ad lib. One of them burnt, was it they burnt down or, or it was closed down or something? Mm. So you got the sense from that that he was a bit disparaging of the 60s. No, Kane and the Beatles and Mary Quant, you know, it's all, it was real. You know, it's probably being played up a bit like these things are, but. I think there was something real, you know, obviously we weren't there, but something real in the air, some kind of liberation, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it was it was the sexual revolution, wasn't it? You know, with the mm. pill, 1960, 61. And then you had the Lady Chatterley court case in, in 60 as well. Mm. So basically all those kids, I think I've mentioned this to you before, all those kids that were born when their fathers came home after the war mm. were now teenagers or young 20-year-olds with money in their pocket and mm. money to burn basically and what else could they spend it on but fashion and music there you go yeah all right yeah with his upbringing so we're, we're sort of saying he had a working class upbringing but you know it wasn't dirt poor and and of course working class mm, working yeah class, working yeah. class yeah and he jokes about you know people were saying oh, oh people will think you're a nancy boy if you become an actor and things like that yeah 
But then if you compare that to, I don't know, let's say Kenneth Williams, for argument's just sake. Just about to say Kenneth you're Williams. You're just about to say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you compare his experience where his father was a, a barber, wasn't he? Yeah. And it, it basically just not disowned him, but just ignored him and really treated him like he was some freak of nature. Because Kenneth Williams obviously was homosexual, but in comparison with Charles Hawtrey and other carry-ons, he was completely overt and outrageous. That's the Kenneth thing, he Williams reacted against his father. Yeah, he reacted by, yeah. by just playing up on the whole thing. That was his answer to his father. It was like, well, you don't like it, I'm just going to do it, and I'm I'm going to be really overt about it at the same time. Yeah, and that's, that's how right. the Kenneth Williams persona came about, really, Yeah, because of yeah. his father's hatred towards the whole acting profession absolutely and then michael kane's early career we're going to talk about that masterclass later which is <laughs> yeah. both enlightening and slightly comic but we'll get there so we know his real name was morris micklewhite change yeah. it to michael kane we all know that from the kane mutiny didn't he the film yeah one night when i was just about as near as i ever got to giving up the business i found josephine burton and learned that she'd finally got me a job on television with a good speaking part the play, she told me, was called The Lark by Jean Anouy, and it was about the life of Joan of Arc. I was to play the small part of Boudouce the guard, who took Joan to Paris to meet the Dauphin. There was one problem, however. I had to become a fully-fledged member of Equity, the British Actors' Trade Union. There was already another actor on Equity's list named Michael Scott, my stage name at the time. Josephine said I must change my last name in the next half hour because she wanted to send the contract off that evening. I promised to call her back. I had called her from a phone box in Leicester Square tube station, so I went and sat in Leicester Square, desperately racking my brains. All around were first-run cinemas, and it was as I was looking at the stars' names up in shining lights that I saw the name Humphrey Bogart, one of my all-time favourite actors. The film that he was in at the time was The Cane Mutiny. I looked for a moment and decided that was the one, for several reasons. Kane was short and sounded easy with Michael, and it was a word with which everybody was familiar, particularly those of us who had been through the British school system. The word mutiny in the title also appealed to me, because at that time I was extremely rebellious and angry, but I couldn't call myself Michael Mutiny. There was another reason for my choice. Kane was the brother of Abel, who was cast out of paradise, and I felt a great sympathy with him at the time. I called Josephine back and told her to put me down as Michael Kane. I think Michael Caine had a good grounding because he probably did up to about 200 bit parts, if you include TV mm-hmm. and stage, wasn't it? So he yeah. learned the tricks in probably the best way you could, which is to not be noticed for years. Yeah, and say? also early TV would have been live as well. Oh, so yes. You yes. think about it, he wouldn't have the opportunity to make any mistakes because the you know the play, play of the week would be going out live. And there's a lot of uncredited stuff when you look on IMDb. Mm. And sometimes it's a it's a blink and you'll miss him, but he's there. One of the early ones. Do you remember the um, mysteries of Edgar Wallace? Yes. Have you seen any of those? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's well, in, years ago, yeah. He's in one called Solo for Sparrow. Yeah. Doing this absolutely atrocious Irish accent. Which, funnily enough, was in '62, which is two years before he got his break. I don't know if we'll be mentioning this because I don't know your top ten. You don't know mm-hmm. my top ten. Let's yep. make that clear. Mm-hmm. But I was watching the Cider House Rules, which didn't make my top ten. A little spoiler. And people were saying he had a really good New England accent. I was thinking, not really. It just sounds like Michael Caine putting on an American accent. What do you think? Can you remember that? Two things Michael Caine cannot do, and I love him as an actor. I absolutely adore Mm. him as you do. He can't do an American accent, and he cannot cry. Every time I see Michael Caine cry on screen, I laugh because 
it just looks like I don't know. Somebody shoved an onion up his nose or something. It's that really over-exaggerated, childlike crying, you know. And, mm. and bless him, I love the man to bits, but it stands out. You'll probably be looking out for it now every time you see Michael Caine cry. I really. think so, yeah. It's just excruciating. But American accents, I mean, Hurry Sundown, he's awful, the accent he puts on in that. I've only ever seen Cider House Rules once. Did he win the Oscar, Best Supporting Oscar for that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He did, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Could be a bit of a pat on the back. He had got one already for Hannah. Hannah and Hannah sisters. Hannah's best supporting well, actors in both cases, wasn't it? Yes. And then there's this really diabolical Steven Seagal movie where, again, I think he puts on a Canadian accent. I'm not too sure. I'm really... But yeah. if he sticks to being Michael Caine, he, that's what he does best. But, yeah, it has always sort of stood out for me when he tries to do an American accent, unfortunately, because I know and love him as the cheeky South Londoner, you know. Yeah. I find with him... Um, we're saying full disclosure we both love the guy and we mm-hmm. think he's a great actor oh, so God, if we yeah. if we make fun of him you know he makes fun of himself let's exactly. let's face it and in fact i'm going to say off the bat we're obviously we haven't put the clips in yet but mm-hmm. i'm probably going to start the show with that clip of him on parkinson doing an impression of himself yes, absolutely which is absolute gold isn't it yeah absolutely yeah. brilliant yeah what i find his mannerisms are so so michael kane Mm-hmm. That when he's playing a New England doctor, whatever it is, Inside House Rules or whatever he's doing at that Stephen Cigar, what was he doing in that Stephen Cigar oh, film? With, with that jet black hair that would shame, you know, Roger Moore again, and Ringo Starr, wouldn't it? We were going to talk about like the three ages of Kane. It's probably a, a good point to sort of yeah, mention this. You know, we've, we've touched on the early stuff before yes. Zulu. That we would say is the first age is, is pre-Zulu. There may be more than three ages, actually, mate. I would then say that there is a, a period from Zulu to about Get Carter, okay. 71, 72, where he is untouchable. Throughout the 70s and most of the 80s, apart from things like The Man Who Would Be King and a couple of other standout performances, that is the worst period in Michael Caine history, as far as I'm concerned, because there's a lot of turkeys. I'm going to mention most of them from that period. Then hits another sweet spot, early 90s, where he's at that age where Hollywood is sort of recognising him as a bit of an elder statesman and treating him with the respect that he should have had continuously all the way through. And there's this resurgence that goes through, I think, from 1990, let's say. For you know, I'll, I'll check the dates as we go along. I'm going to say you're going to agree with me there, mate. There's, I'm pretty sure that's the sort of three ages we're going to... Talk yeah, about. pretty much. Obviously, there's a few within the bad period. You've got mm. stuff like Hannah and her sisters, which yeah. I think he was genuinely brilliant, although yeah. it's not really a big part. That's obviously a very much a Woody Allen film, as as all Woody Allen films are, really. Yeah. He actually credits Jack Nicholson and the film Blood and Wine, mm-hmm. which was 96, which I yep. watched the other day and didn't really consider mm. top tier, nowhere near. No. Considering it's Jack Nicholson and Michael Caine, then Jennifer yeah. Lopez was in there as well. He credited Jack Nicholson because they had so much fun making that as sort of revitalizing him, I think. I think that happened with Connery as well. He went off the boil and then he made Untouchables, talking oh, of terrible yeah. accents. Yes. Supposed to be Irish, I think. But, he can't um, do an Irish one either, that's right. Yeah. No, he doesn't have to, does he? He's a <laughs> Lithuanian <laughs> submarine pilot. Submarines, yeah. The, well, my favourite's Highlander, where he's a Spanish, oh, yeah, Russian, Scotsman or something. I can't yeah, remember. exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it is, you know, it can go that way. I mean, again, if we're talking about 60s musicians, McCartney, Bowie, Dylan, they all had a terrible 80s. Mm. And then the 90s, they kind of found their feet. So it's funny that 
Michael Caine's almost—he's almost like a rock star, really, isn't he? He's—he's is, he's a rock star. He's man. had the rock star. He is a rock star. He's had the rock star <laughs> life. He's had a bit of luck along the way, which he, he admits. Well, we haven't mentioned he also had a top ten record named after him as well in the eighties. Oh, it's madness. It's madness, it? yeah. My name is Michael Caine, yeah. Mm. Oh, should we, um, I was going to do this later, but should we just clear this up now? The two famous catchphrases, not a lot of people know that, and <laughs> by name is Michael Caine. Where do they come from? Are they real? Did he ever actually say them? There's a story, and I may be completely wrong on this, but it was Peter Sellers that did the, not a lot of people know that. Originally. Oh, he did the impression of him, right? I think so think he threw in this catchphrase as not a lot of people know that and it just uh. stuck you never said did you not many people know that i mean no that, peter sellers said that because i'm always full of information and facts you know if you mention something i said you know it. and peter always had the new gadgets right yes. so he was the first one to have an answer machine and i called him one day he wasn't in and there was me saying my name is michael kane i just want you to know that peter sellers is not in not many people know that <laughs> He invented that, not many people know that. Yeah. And then everyone who rang him, they got me saying, not many people know that. <laughs> mince pie. Prompt mince pie. It got to the... <laughs> yeah, right. Do you know about that? Oh, there's not many people know that. What's that there? This is my Michael Caine impression. <laughs> Do you know that it takes a man in a tweed suit five and a half seconds to fall from the top of Big Ben to the ground. Now, there's not many people know that. I think it then got picked up by someone like Mike Yarwood, you know, or the famous impressionist of the 70s, carried on with it. And then that, I'm sure Michael Caine bought out a trivia, or put his name to a trivia book Mm. called Not A Lot Of People Know That. I remember seeing it in the late 70s, early 80s. Just one of those little Christmas stocking fillers, you know, with some fun facts. Well, I've got a funny feeling. I don't think I was dreaming, but I watched mm. Educating Rita about two weeks ago. I'm yep. sure it wasn't him. Someone in the cast mm-hmm. says not a lot of people know that. And I'm more sure it must have been a joke. It's Willie Russell, isn't it, right? Yeah, more sure than likely. A joke. Yeah. More than likely. Yeah, yeah. And what was the other catchphrase you said? My name is Michael Caine. I, I don't... Well, that's it. That's in the Madness song. Yeah. But where did they get it from, do you think? Well, he says it, doesn't he? In, in the market, it's him. For the song, he put his voice. He says, my name is Michael Caine. My name uh, is Michael Caine, doesn't it? Uh, and then they yeah. sing. Da, 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 da. Yeah. It brings to mind the famous trivia question. Which film contains the line, play it again, Sam? Come on, Scott. Well, it's not Casablanca. It's not Casablanca, no. <laughs> it's actually Moonraker. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Roger Moore's, um, I think they're in like a symphony hall and he's fighting upstairs with one of the henchmen and yeah. he chucks him through this glass. I yes, can't remember what it Venice, is. Like a glass yeah. yeah. And he goes, play it again, Sam. <laughs> Michael, you're a wonderful actor. <laughs> I just always claim I'm doing Rob Brydon doing. That's Roger it. Moore. That's the only way to get away. I'm not doing Roger himself. Yeah. One Sauvignon Blanc. Ah, yes. To link with the grilled scallops. Ah. The caviar is from Iran. Oh? Enjoy. Yeah. It's the bendo. Iranian caviar. Please, go first. No, no, no. Please, you go first. Well, before I do, Scaramango, why don't I turn them that way? In which case, should you have interfered uh, with my scallop? My country, it is always traditional that the nearest scallop is served to the guest. Where I come from, it is a custom to 
proffer the larger scallop to the guest. There's a real danger. I mean, we did this on Stinking Paws a few weeks ago. We had a bit of a Sean Connery tribute to the great man. You know, it was the anniversary of his And it just developed into Sean Connery impersonations every five minutes. You know, every now and again, someone going, yes, yes. You know, you can't, you can't stop yourself doing it. You know? No, no. But yeah, the catchphrases and, and the lines will come up as we go through our top ten. It'd be impossible to do them in your own voice. I guarantee it. Absolutely, yeah. And <laughs> some of the stories will come up as well. It'll, it'll all happen. Yeah, yeah. Right, are you ready, mate? Yeah, who's going to go first with this top ten? All right, what we'll do is I'll do ten, you do ten, you do nine, I do nine. Okay. Obviously, uh, certain films will come up. I've got a fairly good idea of a few that will be higher on your list. Don't tell us, but do you have an idea what my number one probably is? I've got an idea what it is, but then you just said something that has sort of thrown me a bit. I will give you a clue as to the general makeup of my top ten. Okay. My love for the 60s is evident within this top ten. And I've selected one movie, I would say, where it is just almost a cameo, a little bit of a longer cameo. We're going to do honourable mentions later. I'll just mm-hmm. mention literally a couple of high-profile films that objectively I probably would be in my top ten, such as Children of Men. Uh-huh. If you've never seen that, on YouTube, you can just watch the Michael Caine scenes. He is brilliant. He's, <laughs> he's a 60s pot-smoking hippie, yes. and he actually based it on John Lennon. And should we just very quickly tell a John Lennon story here for you my other to, audience? Because this is all part of the deal, isn't it? There's a story that um, in 1965, Michael was in Cannes for... Um, I think Al and uh, Zulu must have been um, exhibited. And John Lennon, I don't know what John Lennon, surely Hard Day's Night wasn't at Cannes, it can't have been. But John Lennon was there and the two of them bonded and they spent two or three days getting pissed together and had a really nice time. And there was a point where they were upstairs in one of the rooms and they both needed to urinate. And Michael Caine found a toilet and John Lennon decided to piss off the balcony. Yeah which he had previous form of, because in Hamburg Mm. in 1962, he pissed off a balcony, and the story went that he pissed on some nuns. (laughs) What actually happened was he pissed off a balcony after an all-night session on a Sunday morning, and there happened to be some nuns in the reefer bar (laughs) anyway. And apparently uh, Michael Caine said, um, John, you're getting it all over the curtains. And John Lennon said, oh, they're fucking rich. They can pay for it, or something like that. Anyway, yeah, Children of Men. The other one was the the Dark Knight, the Batman films. I'm not mad on them. And Batman Begins, good. very cl- very close to coming into my top ten. Right, okay. I just loved his interpretation of Alfred. Right, he, yes. he played it as Michael Caine. He didn't play it as a posh butler. He played it as yeah. Michael Caine. And that was very close to being in my top ten. In fact, it would have been number ten had I not have selected what I've just selected. I'll say it's 11, just to be on the safe side. Okay, okay. Yeah. But we said uh, we do honourable mentions and turkeys afterwards. So are unless you ready? Unless they crop up naturally, mate. Yes, unless they crop yeah. up along the way. Yeah. Are you ready? Here we go. Number You're 10. number ten. Yes, please. Yeah. Right. I'm going for 1982 Sidney Lumet Death Trap, which <gasps> you know is a film I have some affection for. I thought that mm. would be in there because of our conversation around Sleuth. About Sleuth, yes. I know you do adore this movie. I've seen it a couple of times. It's not one I go back to enough. I may, may yeah. actually go back to it again now. I remember the premiere on a Sunday night on ITV and the big controversy about the gay kiss and all of yeah. that stuff. And there's a lot of twists and turns, isn't there, as far as I remember? Yeah, it's very much Son of Sleuth. Mm. And Michael Caine does a great job of playing almost the Laurence Olivier, not as over the top as Olivier, but yeah. he's suddenly playing the older guy and it's only 10 years later. Christopher Reeve is, is very good. With these top tens, it's always you're always thinking, is it heart overhead? And objectively, I don't think it's a great film. 
But funnily enough, it's based on an Ira Levin play and it's directed by Sidney Lumet. So yeah. it's got form, but it's pretty absurd. I mean, you just don't really buy him and Christopher Eve as this gay couple. And the story is, without giving the whole story away, he's a failed um, playwright who had a very big play once upon a time. And he's got this very, very jumpy, neurotic, nervous wife played by Diane Cannon. Diane Cannon, isn't it? Yeah. Diane Cannon. Right, and what yeah. happens is that Christopher Reeve writes a play, which is called Death Trap. Michael Caine invites him over and tells the wife they're going to kill him and steal the play. Yeah. What actually happens is um, you think they've killed him, but uh, it's a little ruse whereby the wife gets a shock and dies of, I guess, a heart attack. And they're these two gay lovers. And it's very ridiculous, but it's sort of son of sleuth, which gives yeah. it some, some credibility. So that's my number 10. My number 10 is probably going to be the briefest we actually talk about a movie because it is, it is the one that is the extended cameo as far as I'm concerned. Okay. If ever Michael Caine was born to play a part, this was it. My top 10 is not necessarily great performances or favourite yeah. performance, but this one stands out for me because it's inspired casting and he takes it in the spirit it was intended. It's Austin Powers' gold member. Yes, he plays yes. Nigel Powers, Austin's dad. Right? <laughs> and it, it just turns up in the suit, and they give him the like the dodgy English crooked teeth. Yes. Same as his son, same as Mike Myers, you know. And whereas Mike Myers' is oh, behave is all that sort of groovy baby sort of voice, mm. Michael Caine comes out as Michael Caine, and... If you get the chance to find these two particular clips, mate, of soundbite, if you could find them and put them in, there's one bit, and I had this as a ringtone for years. Mm. He says, Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Oh, put the guns down. Is this, is this the first day on the job or something? Look, this is how it goes. You attack me one at a time, and I knock you out with a single punch, okay? And go. Judo, come on. Always good. Judo, come on. Do you know who I am? Have you any idea how many anonymous henchmen I've killed over the years? And look at you, you haven't even got a name tag. You've got no chance. Why don't you just fall down? Go on, son. And there's a scene where he meets Mini-Me, and Mini-Me start naked, and he describes Mini-Me's penis as like a baby's arm hanging out of a pram holding an apple. <laughs> I'm sure that's what he says. Not his best performance, but at the time, he was having fun because he could afford to pick and choose what he wanted, and he was in demand. And there's another movie coming up later on my list that also exemplifies that as well. All right, you're number nine. My number nine, I made a mistake, but Pat McGinn's is number nine. Uh... On my list, I did keep it in. Right, the reasoning behind this, as I did sort of hint at, I'm not a massive Christopher Nolan fan. Don't particularly like Interstellar. Haven't seen Tenet because I've got no inclination to see it. The Batman movies, I loved what he did. I loved the darkness of them and the way that a lot of the essence of some of the darker graphic novels and comics was kept. And as I just sort of hinted at briefly, his performance as Alfred, you can believe that he is just like an ex-soldier, probably fought in the war or Korea. Mm. It'd been Korea, wouldn't it? Because of Michael Caine. And he becomes this father figure to Christian Bale. And that sort of relationship becomes really believable. And again, it's at that point in his career where, do you know what? He probably would have got top billing because, you know, over Christian Bale, because mm. it's Sir Michael Caine at this point, you know, mm. his acting royalty appearing in a comic book movie. Yeah. Just stands out for me. It, it's, it's the perfect casting. I would sort of look back at some of the other, you know, character actors that have played Alfred. And you know, Michael Goff was great. 
as Alfred. I think Jeremy Irons played him in one, didn't he? One of the newer ones. And it's Andy Serkis in the brand new one, as far as I'm aware. But no, for me, yeah, perfect casting. And again, takes it in the spirit that it was intended. I think this is going to be a theme going through some of the stuff that we, you know, we touch upon as we, we talk over the next hour or so, mate. Yeah. Didn't he say in one of his um, memoirs that Nolan actually rang him up? Nolan wanted him for the part or more than likely. I, or, I could believe that. Yeah. He, he I'm would not have been big, number one choice, you know, I'm and then he's appeared Nolan. in every single Nolan film, isn't he? Pretty much. Even in Dunkirk, he's, he's the voice on the radio in Dunkirk. Oh, right. I'm not a big Nolan fan. I thought Inception was absolute crap. To be yeah, exactly. Fan. I'm not a massive really fan. bad. There's so much better people at the moment. Anyway, uh, this is my number nine. Yeah, you're yeah. probably going to be a bit disappointed by this, but okay. uh, it would have been higher, but it's only the comp- only because of the competition. Number nine is the Ipcrest file from 1965. <laughs> it's in mine, top ten. It's higher. Yeah, it's higher. I thought it would be. I, I don't know. There's nothing bad about it. I thought it fell away a little bit towards the end. I haven't seen it for ages, but the whole, what's the name of the character? Harry Palmer, right? Harry yeah. Palmer, yeah. Which I think was something to do with Harry Saltzman. Our first problem with it, Chris, was the fact that the book had been written in the first person and the narrator had no name. One evening, we were sitting around discussing this when Harry said, this spy was to be the antithesis of James Bond, a very ordinary bloke, someone who could mingle unnoticed in a crowd and who should have an ordinary, boring name. What's the dullest first name we can give him, asked Harry. Charlie Cashier, his partner on this film, myself, and a couple of other people sat there meditating about this for a while and then... Without thinking, I blurted out, Harry is a pretty dull name. All eyes turned to Harry, who, for all his friendship and kindness, had a ferocious temper. He stared straight at me for a moment and then started to laugh. Let's call him Harry, then, he said. My real name's Herschel. Audible sighs of relief hissed round the room as the danger passed. Now we needed a surname. We all started to go through the dullest names we could think of, Smith, Brown, Jones, etc. None of them felt right. Finally, Harry said, The dullest person I ever met was called Palmer. So that was it. The character was christened Harry Palmer. It was during one of these Sunday night sessions that Harry hit on another idea for the character. I'm short-sighted in real life and always wear glasses. During the meal, Harry kept staring at me and finally remarked, I always hate it in films when actors who do not normally wear glasses are made to wear them and don't know how to handle them. You, he said to me, know exactly what to do with them. It will also help to make the guy look more ordinary. Remember, Harry was the co-producer of the Bond series at that time with Cubby Broccoli. And as Ipcrest was his own production, he wanted to get away as far as possible from the Bond image. The whole idea of the anti-James Bond with glasses and cooking is great. I love all that. Mm. And he's brilliant in it, and I like the boss. I know it's going to be higher up your list, but why don't you just talk about it? Do you want to talk about it now? As I said earlier, my top ten is heavily laden with 60s cane performances ipcrest file as you say was the anti-bond this french cooking glasses wearing anonymous spy you know not the big brash womanizer although he is a bit of a womanizer in this when you do watch it you know yeah this whole movie screams the 60s you cut it in half and it's got the 60s running through it from that very end bit that you're not particularly fond of, you know, with the whole hypnotist, um, mm. you know, the hallucinations and the drug and all that sort of stuff at the end. The use of Dutch angles throughout the movie. Every camera shot is unique in this movie because the director has filmed 
through something or under something or around something or above is never a standard camera shot where everybody is centrally placed there is something askew in every single shot of this movie mm. and that is the highlight of the movie for me is is the visual effects the cinematography mm. and michael kane just ties it all together mm. for me not yeah. a big fan too much of the sequels diminishing returns as far as i'm concerned they get progressively worse and then he did make a comeback in the 90s as harry palmer i never watched those either preserve the memory instead. exactly yeah, exactly yeah. Why, why would you want to see an aging harry palmer it's a bit like indiana jones again this year you know 80 yeah, year old yeah. indy is going to be a bit dodgy in it but to me because of my love of the 60s and 60s kane in particular i won't tell you where it is but it is certainly higher up than number nine in my list sure. all right i've got, I've got a couple more things to say with james bond i wonder when they were making this I don't think the James Bond films had got absurd by then because they'd only made, I mean, Thunderball was the fourth one and that came out the same year as this. But obviously the whole thing with James Bond, the super spy, he goes to any hotel in the world. Ah, Mr. Bond, we've got your, you know, the idea you're supposed to be, you know, not that undercover. No, (laughs) a secret agent. The other thing, it is very 60s because you've got thing you remember about the 60s. This is obviously pre psychedelia by a couple of years. As we said earlier, there was a very normal world going on. Exactly. Um, and I was going to tell you this. I think I was sort of joking almost, but when I was a kid and I got into the whole 1967 psychedelia idea, mm. I guess I was about probably 13, 14 when I started becoming a Lennon Beatles fan. You know, I used to say to my mum, oh, you know, when they played the Wimbledon tennis final, do they all wear like multicolored clothes and stuff? And she was like, uh, no. Or in the cup, in the FA Cup final, do they all come out wearing caftan? Loom pants, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I was serious. I don't know. I was, I was, it was hats and overcoats, mate. Obviously, yeah, it was just hats and overcoats. <laughs> and the idea of um, Harry Palmer and see, I love the scene in the supermarket where he meets his boss and they're what's yeah. he shopping for? Do they mention any? Food? I can't remember. They've got the baskets, haven't they? And, and, yeah. We decided to have Harry Palmer shopping in a supermarket and pushing his own trolley full of groceries. Here was territory that Bond, brave though he was, would never have dared to tread. At this point, one or two of the fainter hearts started to demur. Maybe we were making this Palmer guy just a bit too much of a wimp, but Harry told us not to worry. He would have Palmer fighting a duel with his boss using the trolleys as weapons. He was looking for something quite exotic, wasn't he? Some some sort of fruit or something? I can't remember. Maybe. Yeah, because he was cooking whatever it was, this amazing meal. And yeah. Didn't they actually bring out a Harry Palmer cookbook at the time? Len Dayton <laughs> actually wrote a Harry Palmer cookbook, didn't he? I'm sure I don't know, but I yeah. wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. yeah, I didn't re-watch this. Maybe if I'd re-watched it, it might come higher, but I very much like it anyway. All right, number eight. Are you ready for this? You're number eight, yes, sir. 2009, Back to His Roots, Harry Brown. Okay. Um, watching it the other night, I realised this is the English equivalent of Gran Torino. Have you seen that Clint Eastwood film? Yes, I have. Yeah. Where the the OAP is not taking any more shit. You know what I mean? I've only this seen it on- once. I loved it. I, I don't know why I've not gone back to it. I think personally, for me, the hype over it put me off a wee bit. And, and and people were hyping it up. I think for the wrong reasons. They weren't hyping it up for his performance. It was just because of the mm. violence and the gang sort of storyline and all of that lot. Um, I mm. must go back to it. Yeah, but sorry, mate, carry on. I watched it about a week ago, and I, mm. I did think it was very good. It's very gritty, and I think what Michael Caine has, you know, we could make fun of certain mannerisms he has, but he would probably tell you acting's all in the eyes, and he does have that gift. Mm. There's something in his eyes, and when he looks angry. 
it can occasionally look a bit comic, but in this film it doesn't, you know. Yeah. And he's also got that thing of, you know, he's obviously was already an old man, but he's got that lethargy about him and that because I'd forgotten some of the plot actually. I think they fought in Northern Ireland, him and his mate. That's it. And his mate gets murdered by these youngsters. Yeah. Who obviously I don't know if they're on they're on crack or something. Mm. You know, there's obviously drugs going around. But it's that Michael came back to his roots, and it's just the idea of him being back in that area was kind of romantic to me, I suppose. Yeah, so, I must uh, go back to that myself, actually, because I only ever saw mm. it when it first came out. So perhaps that will go up in my estimation now in the past, in the time, mate. I'll mm. certainly give it another go. Yeah, I think it. Yeah, I think you would enjoy it. And you know, joking aside, I think this on a double bill with Gran Torino would be brilliant because you've got. Clint Eastwood and Michael Caine, like I said, playing very similar roles, but very yeah. convincingly. I, I, did you like Gran Torino? I love Gran Torino, yeah, actually. Good, yes. Yeah. yeah. Very good. All right. You're number eight, I think we're up to. Number eight, an extended cameo in this particular case. We're going back to the 80s British movie. I'm surprised so far in our conversation we haven't mentioned Bob Hoskins. Oh, uh, yeah. Similarities of, you know, acting styles and performances and things like that. And my number eight is Mona Lisa. Ah, oh, yes, I love that. Yeah, yeah, because it's very rare when we actually go through this two lists and the honourable mentions and everything we're, we're going to be talking about. It's going to be very rare that you find Michael Caine playing a right nasty bastard. There's <laughs> obviously one which we'll get to yeah, later. We won't mention it now. Yeah. It's not something you ever gravitated towards. And in Mona Lisa, he plays a right nasty bastard. Yeah. <laughs> and I rewatched it middle of last year for only the second or third time in about 20 years and we reviewed it on real britannia and i want this to be higher up on my list it's certainly in the top 20 of my all-time favorite movies now possibly top 10 but because there's so much wealth of michael kane goodness coming up yes i had to put it in somewhere so i sort of selected for the sake of this experiment this is number eight Mm. okay because it's refreshing it was unnerving to see him as such a nasty bastard as yeah. well because it's like oh hang on you're michael kane you're not supposed to do that yeah. but he does it so well yeah. and it's just intimidating bob oskins and kathy tyson and all those guys you know and that storyline that goes on mm. it's a great movie it's typical film for production from the mid 80s handmade film george harrison mm. there's your connection there you go mm. mate i brought him in for mm. you <laughs> um and i love that little era it was an exciting time for British film, the early 80s, because yeah. we started getting a bit of funding to make movies again because we'd had a shit sort of 20 years up to that point, 15 years or so, where British films were, weren't winning any awards. They were seen as a bit of a joke. And along comes Handmade Films and Film 4 and revitalises the whole genre, the whole industry. And that sits there towards the top of the tree for me amongst all of those just because it is a unique performance from him or a fairly unique performance from him. Yep. A lot of people already know this, obviously, but George Harrison started handmade films and famously financed life of Brian mm-hmm. came out in 79, but I guess it was about 78. They'd already written the script. They'd filmed all of it, most of it. And then they yep. got rejected for obvious reasons, I suppose, although I don't agree with it. And George Harrison said, financed it. Cause he said, I wanted to see the film. <laughs> that's a generic Beatles accent that any, was, that any was of the one, four of them that yeah. could have been Ringo mate absolutely yeah well it's more George and John George <laughs> and John's ball sort of this Paul's like very yeah it's great you know oh it's um, like having them in the room yeah <laughs> or, or someone else in the room yeah. 
Mona Lisa, the only reason it's not in my top ten is just I slanted more towards his starring roles. That's the only reason. Yeah, I yeah. love that film as well. And he, he is convincing. I think he's, like I say, the film that's definitely at the business end of both of our lists, he's even nastier. But this one, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a great Bob Hoskins fan as well. So, yeah, the only reason it's not there is just because it's not a big role. That's all. It's, it's, a, it's a top ten, mate, exactly. You can't fit everything in. So. Yeah, there you go. All right, your number seven. Oh, well, this is definitely on your list, and I'm <laughs> convinced it's higher up. Good. But you're going to have to talk about it with me now. It's Sleuth. Oh, okay. Yours is much higher, isn't it? I know it's much higher. Yeah, I might hold back a tiny bit now. Okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. <laughs> what we'll say is my number seven is Sleuth, and we will save the conversation until it appears on your list. How about All right. That? Okay. <laughs> We'll take your number seven instead, then. All right, my number seven. Uh, see, we're going to fall into this trap now. Yeah. My number seven is the Italian job. Clearly. A little bit higher. A little bit higher, but I'm happy to talk about that now. All right, let's talk about it now. I always felt with this film, I love it. It's great. I watched a documentary years ago. It must have been some making of or something. And the original script had these sort of themes of, well, patriotism and xenophobia. I think one of the things that convinces Noel Coward to do it is something to do with the Italians and Fiat and everything. Mm. So it was that interesting bit of that. And then they made the decision to turn it into a caper, which I'm perfectly happy with. And in fact, I dug out the DVD. I'd forgotten I had it. And I listened to a very good audio commentary with the producer who weirdly enough also produced, what was it? Blade Runner. And what's the other one he did? It wasn't alien. It was something like that. Or deer, no deer hunter. Okay. This very posh English guy called mm. Michael something. I don't remember his name. He did, uh, yeah, Italian Job, Deer Hunter and Blade Runner. So I really got to appreciate it. I feel it it was sort of a bit betwixt and between. That was all. But you go for it. What do you think? What so could I, you possibly say? <laughs> I said earlier, didn't I, that what particular movie was it? I just said The Screams, The 60s. I can't remember what it was. Ip Crest Vile. Ip Crest Vile. I said, so does this you know even more so it's a comfort movie for me in a way because it's one that Mm. was always on the tv every bank holiday every easter every christmas whatever it was and you'd always find yourself watching it even if it was halfway through you'd have to watch it be like the great escape you know that sort of Mm. like comfort movie that you knew things were well in the world if the italian job was on Mm. and I watch it quite consistently. Not every year, every couple of years, I'll just pop it on. I generally tend to watch it round about Christmas because it just gives me that feeling of like Christmas is past, you know, and it's like a talent yeah. job needs to be on at that time of year. And I was quite surprised that I brought it to the table for the stinking pause for a review about four years ago, four or five years ago. And Paul, my co-host, hadn't seen it since he was a kid. So we're going back like 30, 40 years almost. And he said, oh, yeah, great. The Italian job. I love that movie. He hated it. With adult eyes, he said, it's laughable. He just couldn't get into the spirit of it, watching it as an adult. But Mm. for me, who has watched it consistently throughout my entire life Mm. and cherished it and loved it, I couldn't see anything wrong with it. I just totally embraced the whole 60s vibe, the Quincy Jones soundtrack, Matt Munro at the beginning, the E-type Jags, the minis, Rossano Brazzi, all of these things pieced together to make... Not the perfect heist movie, because I know you're a big lover of heist movies, Mm. but the perfect caper heist movie, if you Mm. like, you know, very tongue in cheek, very self-aware of what it's trying to achieve. Amazing side cast. As you say, there's Noel Coward as a cameo, but then you've got people like John Lemezure 
and Benny Hill, Benny and, Hill. you know, all of those guys that are in this as well. Fred Emney's literally a silent cameo. Mm. And Michael Caine, I don't want to say he was first choice for this because I think Terence Stamp might have been. I think so, yeah. Yeah, but I can't see anybody else planning it because if you think when this was made, which was the tail end of the 60s and it's almost a mm. summer of love sort of era, it is overblown. And it goes back to that thing that we said that not everybody was walking around Carnaby Street with big floppy hats, loom pants and platform soles or whatever with flowers mm. in there. You know, when he comes out of prison and he's, you know, goes to the, the tailors and the tailor says to him, you know, you're still wearing that. He said, well, that's what I went in prison with, you know, and he's, he's oh, mm. dear Lord, you know, and he's like trying to adjust the lapels and, you mm. know, get him all suited up to suit the, the era that he's come out of prison to. As is typical of my list here, it's not the best Michael Caine performance, mm. not the best Michael Caine film, but I love it. Mm. And so it just has that appeal to me. Mm. And I'll say, I think it's more of a nostalgia sort of comfort type thing for me. I was saying earlier, it, there is something comforting about him. You know, obviously the, mm. there are nasty films, but I watched uh, Pulp, which is not a great film. But there's something about him. You know, he, he's just got that star quality. Mm. I would say Noel Coward, amazing. I love the shots of the Alps. Brilliant. I like yeah. the Italian. Obviously, I'm half Italian. Yep. The chaos of the traffic jam, because it's, it's just the best place to start a traffic jam is Italy. If you want to just have loads of people kind of waving their hands around and screaming and shouting about it, you know, it's perfect in that sense. Maybe the reason it's not higher on the list almost seemed a bit too easy for mm-hmm. Michael. And that's probably a testament to what a good actor he is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose whenever you see him playing a Cockney, I'm not talking about Alfie. I'm sort of subsequently, it almost seems too easy. That's probably why it's not higher. You know, this is why I said that, things like when he tries to do an american accent seem to jar a little because it's not natural to him Mm. it's not how you envision michael kane you envision alfie you envision the italian job charlie croker you envision harry brown you know all those south london characters so yeah yeah, perhaps that's what it is mate yeah yeah it could be yeah and i haven't seen it that many times either i've probably only seen it three four times so Ah, you need to multiply that 10 times mate before you get a real appreciation for it all right we'll come we'll come back when he turns when he turns 100 we'll come back Uh, yeah i'll probably hate it but i'll be sick of it (laughs) (laughs) all right who's next is it my six now have you done your seven? Well, my seven was Sleuth, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Ah, okay, so it's my six, isn't it? All right. This is the only, uh, I think it's the only supporting actor role in the top ten, in fact. As I told you, I slanted more towards leading roles, but Hannah and her sisters. I'm a big Woody Allen fan. Obviously, you know, his private life, whatever was proved and not proved, is very sketchy. I separate the two. I mean, OK, I don't sit around watching reruns of Jim Will Fix It. Let me make that clear. Exactly. With Gary Glitter on the stereo. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That won't mean anything to our American <laughs> friends listening. But I think Woody Allen, I think he's a bit like McCartney in a way. He's just, he's a compulsive, as McCartney is a compulsive songwriter, Woody Allen almost can't do anything else with his time. Leaving aside the rumours, yes, he just makes films all the time. I think he's that much of a neurotic person. Obviously, he is in, has been in this long relationship with the Sun Yi. But other than mm-hmm. that, I think it, the only thing that makes sense to him is making films. And he makes too many, you know, arguably in the last 20 years, the only thing of note really that's been top tier has been maybe Match Point or um, what's the one about Paris? Yeah, the one, the musical one, the one with uh, Owen Wilson. Yeah, yeah. I think that was Midnight in Paris. Midnight in Paris, is that it? Then he made one called To Rome With Love, which I quite mm. liked. What he was doing up until recently, I don't know if he's mm. still doing it, he, he made a film a year. 
And mm. I don't think he's actually kept that momentum now. But for a right. long period throughout 80s through the 90s, and I think there was a 40-year run, I think they worked out, he produced a film every single year, you know, which is incredible. incredible. Yeah, and not all of them were brilliant. And not mm. all of them got recognised, did they, mate? And this one mm. did, thankfully. Not necessarily because of Woody Allen itself, but when you look at the cast in this as well, it's an mm. amazing cast list. In yeah. this, from Max von Sydow to Maureen O'Sullivan to Carrie Fisher. Diane Weist got Diane Weist is in it, you know, and she's brilliant yeah. in it, you know. That's the thing, because he had that cachet at the time before the scandal that everybody wanted to work with him. That was the thing. I, mm. You have to be in a Woody Allen film. You're not classed as an actor, predominantly. Yeah. And I mean, from everything, um, from about, probably about Annie Hall, I mean, even before then, I like some of the early stuff. It's mm. great. Let's say from Annie Hall for about 10 years, he was really taken seriously. Yes, absolutely. And Hannah and Her Sisters is 86, and I think mm. it's just a masterpiece. I, I meant to rewatch it. There were a few that I just didn't get to, like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels I wanted to watch to see if it was good, because I saw it at the cinema in 1988 and I hadn't seen it since. Yeah, Woody Allen... He'd gone to start doing dramas. Annie Hall's technically a rom-com, I suppose, but yes. it had a bit of drama. Manhattan had a bit of drama. And Michael Caine's just brilliant. And it, definitely not doing that much. Nothing. He does it, nothing in this film. He does just nothing, but, it's, but he's obviously <laughs> doing it. He's doing what the role requires. And it's such a brilliant relationship in the film. Mia Farrow mm. and Michael Caine as this married couple. And she's kind of strong and fragile at the same time. She was yep. so good at that, Mia Farrow, wasn't she? Mm. And yeah, he's just, not doing a lot. And uh, I, I just remember him walking around in the background, just wearing a jumper, pouring wine. Oh, that's all I remember yeah. from this movie. Too. <laughs> I think he does some voiceover. Again, I didn't rewatch it. I wish I had, but I think there's some voiceover of Michael Caine. I could be wrong about that. The hilarious thing, I mean, he got on very well with Woody Allen. He said Woody Allen was absolutely fine. But Woody Allen was directing him in a love scene with Woody Allen's real wife. Was it even in their bedroom? Really? What, in Woody Allen's own bedroom? They shoot some in Woody <laughs> Allen's apartment, or have I got that wrong? Listeners, write in, please. Excellent, if that's I'm sure I read that. How bizarre, how twisted. Woody's films have such an air of reality that people often ask if you ad-lib most of the dialogue. Of course, the opposite is true. The dialogue, which is written by Woody, is carved in stone, unless you can come up with something on the spur of the moment that is much better than the material he has spent months perfecting which is highly unlikely. In Hannah and Her Sisters, I play a man who is married to Mia Farrow, yet seduces her sister, played by that gifted actress and lovely woman, Barbara Hershey. Mia's mother in the film was played by her real mother, Maureen O'Sullivan, the first and most gorgeous Jane that I ever saw in a Tarzan movie. In the film, Mia and I have children, and these were played by her real children, and the flat that we lived in in the film was Mia's real apartment. One day, I wound up doing a love scene in bed with Mia in her own bedroom and being directed by her lover. This was nerve-wracking enough, but got even worse when I looked up during the rehearsal to find her ex-husband, Andre Previn, watching us from the other side of the bedroom. He had come to visit the children. Yeah, I love that, and I, I'm going to rewatch that one. All right, your number six. We've already spoke about my number six, unfortunately. It's the Ipcress file. The Ipcress file is six, and we spoke at length about that, and I'll just reiterate that I think it's the whole combination, not only of Michael Caine creating an iconic character, but also the cinematography and the direction of the movie and the screaming 60s-ness of it, basically. Mm. Yeah, just one final comment, which I didn't get to earlier. All, All that psychedelic stuff... I think with those old films, it's the same when they go delve into psychology. There's a couple of Hitchcock. There's obviously Marnie. 
There's another one he made with Gregory Peck. Spellbound, had that, yes. Had that Salvador Dali. Yeah, uh, Spellbound. For some reason, I don't think in the past, in older films, they got that. I think it's maybe the advantage of technology now. Yeah. You can create better. I mean, obviously, Apocalypse Now is about 10, whatever years, 15 years later than that. That kind of thing has improved with age, so that probably marks it down a bit. All right, you're number five, mate. Did you want to take a break, did you say, at this point? Oh, yeah, sorry, yes. Now, what we were going to do is prepare some uh, quiz-type questions. So what we'll do is, I was supposed to prepare five, and I prepared eight. And I prepared none. Okay. (laughs) So between between us, we're nearly there. Now, what we'll do is, I'm going to give the audience a couple of seconds to try and answer, and Mm -hmm. then you get a chance to answer as well. Okay, I'll keep quiet then for a little while, and then I'll come up with some questions while I'm thinking as well. All right. Well, this one, I know you know the answer to, because we've already talked about it. But just for the listeners, which two films has he won Best Supporting Actor Oscars for? Okay, listeners, you ready? Five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, Scott. I'm going to say Hannah and the Sisters and Cider House Rules. Uh, very good, yes. 1986 and 1999. All right, here we go. A little bit more difficult. How many times has Michael Caine been nominated for the Best Actor Oscar? He hasn't won any, by the way, but how many times? Okay, listeners, you ready? Can't hear you. Okay, that's enough time. Okay, Best Actor, say, not yes. Supporting Actor. An Oscar rather than BAFTA. I'm sure, I didn't check BAFTAs. I'm Do you sure know what? Nice. I don't think he has. Doesn't he? If he has, it's only once. I can't think. Cause I think he must have won a BAFTA for Educating. It, yeah, BAFTA surely, he must have done. Yeah, surely. but I'm just thinking Oscars. Go on, give us I'll, a number and then we'll I want to say none, but then I'm thinking it might be one point he must have done. But I'm going to say zero. He hasn't been nominated for Best Actor Oscar. Oh, no, no. Four. Really? Yes. What, what were the four? All right, here we go. Alfie. Oh, yeah, okay. it, was, it was nominated yeah, for better. Right. And I was a bit surprised because I always think of that as so British. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. didn't travel, but apparently it did. Uh, Sleuth, because famously oh. the yeah the entire cast were nominated for best actor, exactly. which is the two of them. Remembered that, but, yeah. But they lost. Who did they lose to that year? I can't can't think. Can't remember. It was a very minor movie, wasn't it that year? Yeah. Some fellow who didn't like his Oscar, yeah. Marlon Brando. Yeah, that's it. Mm. Educating Rita again. Bit surprised. Oh. And what film uh, based on a Graham Greene book did he get uh, nominated for Best Actor? It wasn't the honorary consul. I want to say A Man in Havana, but it's not A Man in Havana, is it? It's the Constant Gardener or something, is that the one? Quite American. Quite, Quite American. American, that was it. I saw yeah. that in cinema, I didn't like it. Oh, really, yeah. I saw yeah, it once, it. yeah, it's pretty good, yeah. It didn't get my top yeah. ten, obviously, but it was bubbling under. He made a film called The Honorary Consul in the 80s, which was based on a Graham Greene. That's the one I'm thinking and of. One of Michael Caine's stories is years later, I think after, no, it was before The Quiet American, he met Graham Greene somewhere and was trying to avoid him because he didn't want, because he was worried <laughs> that Graham Greene had seen The Honorary Consul. So they got talking and he said, and Graham Greene said, yeah, I did see The Honorary Consul, Michael. Um, I thought the film was terrible, but you were good. So <laughs> there you go. And then I don't know if Michael Caine met him after The Quiet American. I don't know how long Graham Greene lived for, actually, but. I felt with The Quiet American, it's probably a bit too obvious, but he was just a little bit too old. You could sort of believe it, but what was he? I think he was about, was that in the 2000s? I can't remember. Let's say he was about 70, maybe. Just a tiny bit too old. I'm not being ageist, but you know, if he'd made it five, ten years earlier, it probably would have got in my top ten. But Okay. Anyway, so Alfie Sleuth, Educating Rita in The Quiet American. Mm. Here we go. This is my silly question. Which film did Michael Caine famously not say, Bloody hell, that's a big shark. <laughs> Don't even answer that. <laughs> that's one of the turkeys. Top five for me, mate. 
it's fully plausible that a shark <laughs> would travel a shark would travel all the way from America to the Caribbean because one of his, because one of his friends got shot by the chief yeah. of police. So yeah. uh, the shark family they get together, they huddle, and they decide they're going to travel thousands of oceans <laughs> to kill his wife. It's perfectly plausible. Again, about? a perfect example of diminishing returns. That whole series of movies. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, here, this is an interesting one. You'll like this one. Which okay. product or brand? Was the future Mrs. Kane, Shakira, advertising when Michael saw her on TV and thought, I'm going to marry that girl. I've got an idea. Was it Maxwell House Coffee? Give that man a cigar. Because he was in the flat with Terence Stamp at the time, wasn't he? And he did say, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And he sought her out, didn't he? Exactly. No, but the funny thing was, I think um, he found out she was, oh, what was she doing? modelling in somewhere very exotic but then it turned out she lived a few miles down the she road she lived in Earl's Court or somewhere didn't oh, she I it. think it was like yeah good story alright I think you know this one what family secret was revealed to Michael Caine in the early 90s uh, listeners 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 no not quick enough okay. <laughs> he had a brother that he was unaware of that was in a care home is that right yeah something like that was that half brother it was in a care home, wasn't he? Something like that. Yeah. But the incredible thing is that the mother visited this boy every Monday for 40 years without yes. telling anybody. Nobody knew. Yeah, yeah nobody knew. The hot, those, all those decades, 30, 40 years. I think the only time she didn't visit was when Michael persuaded her to come to America on holiday because Michael was living, was it maybe in Hollywood or around that area? Yeah, he was, while. yeah. Yeah. Great story. And he, and he right. supported him right up until he, he died, didn't he, apparently? Yeah, I think so, yeah. All right, this is a good one. This one, I think you're going to know this. Which director has Michael Caine made the most films with? Nolan? Yeah, definitely Nolan. Seven films. Mm. Which um, is one of my questions coming up in a second. How was it? <laughs> Christopher Nolan was my answer. <laughs> He's made two with the following directors. This is Lewis Gilbert. Lewis Gilbert, famous sort of Ealing director, wasn't he, Gilbert? We made Alfie and he made... Oh, Lewis Gilbert was educating Rita. Oh, of course it was, because, yeah, big comeback for Lewis Gilbert, because I think he also did Fish Called Wonder, didn't he, Lewis Gilbert? Or was that Charles Crichton? Always That's get Charles mixed up. Crichton, yeah. Yeah, always get those two mixed up. Guy Hamilton, Mike Hodges, Erwin Allen, we'll definitely be mentioning those. Oh, I was going to mention <laughs> Erwin Allen as well in the quiz, but I'll leave that because oh, uh, he needs to be spoken about. And John Houston, which two films? Did uh, Man Who Would Be King... I can't remember no. the other one. What's the other one? Oh, Escape um, um, to Victory. Escape to Victory, which I can never, I was going to ask you this later, I can never work out if it's actually a good film or just so bad it's good. I can never work that out. What, Escape to Victory? Time, yeah, is it actually a good film or is it kind to of... To me, yeah, yes. You think it's a good film? All right. Yeah. Because it involves dozens of football legends. I'm not sure you're not a massive football fan, are you? You're more boxing. I used to, no, I yeah. used to be a football. I used to be a football fan, definitely mm. in that era. What I remember about it was obviously Stallone's in goal. And if you watch any Rocky films, whenever he gets punched, he always goes, that's, that's his standard front, right? And then what you see in the film is that he's kind of going, as he's diving for the, for the ball. Michael Caine's basically playing a sort of Bobby Moore, isn't he? But the weird he, thing is that Bobby Moore's there. As he's well. in the film, yeah. But the, obviously the great bit is when he's talking about tactics and Pele just takes the chalk and says, this especially applies to wingers. If you can't cross, don't run it through. Try and get a corner. A set piece works in our favour. Which means that as they... Give me this. Go. I have to give me ball. 
Here I do this, 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 go. Easy. <laughs> anyway, that wasn't in my top ten. But um, final one: In which year was Michael Caine knighted? Two thousand two. Oh, close. Two thousand. Pretty good. Catchphrase. We've already talked about this. What about parodies? What's your favourite Michael Caine parody? We could go on for hours about the trip. I love the My, trip. But you got Michael Payne, the nosy neighbour from the Fast Show. Yeah. I can do an impression because this is Paul White. My name is Michael Payne and I am a nosy neighbour. <laughs> Just this idea of Michael Payne peering through the curtains. It's the Paul Whitehouse. Yeah, yeah, the Presidian lady who lives directly opposite. <laughs> That's yeah. it, yeah. My name is Michael Payne and I am a nosy neighbour. Now, the Brazilian beauty who lives diagonally opposite but one has an inordinate amount of gentlemen callers. The other day, I couldn't help but notice that she went out without double locking her front door. <laughs> For me, a three-lever latch is the work of an instant. I use a Safeways added bonus card. Do you see? A, B, C. Added bonus card. It's child's play. But I digress. <laughs> Having gained access to her home, I was able to secrete myself under the floorboards in her bedroom (laughs) and by means of a small drilled hole I had the perfect opportunity to witness her antics over the next four days (laughs) do you know what I deduced from my observations I deduced that she'd gone on bloody holiday (laughs) I was very glad to get home not a lot of people know how bloody glad I was to get home but I bloody well was bloody glad oh yes In a way, he became a parody of himself for a while. He yes, played he up on that. We played the clip, didn't we, on Parkinson, where he said, like, people that do impressions of me make yeah. me sound like this, makes me sound like a bloody idiot, you know. And it is, everybody does that. And, and Coogan and um, Rob Brydon get it perfectly because they said it's not that old exaggerated thing. It's very subdued. It's very, the voice is deeper. And they do the whole line about she was only 16 years old. Yeah, well, I'll play a bit. Um, let's play right. the clip of um, Coogan and Bryden having a sort of cane off, if you know what I mean, comparing. So we'll play that now. Well, broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of, my name's Michael Caine. That is where you are right. so wrong. That's and you can look at my live video that's, for proof, that's, because that's, I, that's the do, very thing I don't do. What, I do, say do, that he do, used to talk do, like that. Do you, Michael Caine? OK. I say, Michael Caine used to talk like this in the 1960s, right? But that has changed. And I say that over the years, Michael's voice has come down several octaves. Let me finish. And all of the cigars and the brandy don't let me finish can now be heard. Okay. In the, I've not fucking finished in the back of the voice and the voice okay. now. Will I've still not finished the voice. Because you're panicking. I've, yeah, no, because you look stop. like you're about to bloody talk. Let me finish. Right, so, Michael Caine's voice now in the Batman movies and in Harry Brown. I can't go fast because Michael Caine talks very, very slowly. Right, this is how Michael Caine speaks. Michael Caine speaks to his nose like that. He gets very, very specific. It's very like that. When he gets loudly, it gets very loud indeed. It gets very specific. It's not quite nasal enough the way you're doing it, all right? You're not doing it the way he speaks. 
You're not doing it with the kind of, and you don't do the broken voice when it gets very emotional. When it gets very emotional indeed. She was only 16 years old. She was only 16, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. That's Michael Caine. I'm pretty sure the she was only 16 years old is, is get Carter, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not in the finished film because I no. watched it. Because obviously the it's his niece, isn't it? His brother's daughter gets. Or is it uh, Mona Lisa then? Is it Mona Lisa? Because there's Sammy What's her face in Mona Lisa, the young prostitute. Uh, maybe. It Who might be that. Again, listeners, please feel free to put something in the comments. And I even looked online and nobody could agree. Uh, they said it was a deleted scene from Get Carter, which would make sense because his niece is in a porn film. But, yeah, you mm. could be right. I don't know about that. I honestly don't know. It may be one of those ones, like Play It Again, Sam, that just never yeah. happened. But uh, there's another great clip. I think I'll, rather than play the audio, I'll put this in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Have you seen in 2014 the tribute when Coogan and Bryden are sitting on a balcony and they've got microphones so everyone in the auditorium can hear? And they start having a conversation. Oh, this is really good, isn't it? I'm really looking forward to this. And they go, tonight is to honour one man. <laughs> they start. Um, they basically have the argument they have on the trip where they said, uh, when Michael was young, he talked like this. But over the years, with the brand new, the cigars, it's all that kind of thing. You, you don't do the broken voice when it gets very emotional. <laughs> And then, Mike, what it is, is that you see in the background someone reading a programme and then he takes it away and it's Michael himself. Oh, brilliant. No, I haven't seen that. I'll have to and then uh, you'll know what this is a reference to. Coogan uh, asked the um, important question, did you kill Alf Roberts? So what's that a reference to? That's Get Carter, isn't it? Throws, yeah. um, Brian, Brian Mosley from yeah. the uh, multi-storey car parking Gateshead, I think That's it, is, it. Isn't That's it? it. Yeah. Again, for the overseas listeners, there was a soap opera called Coronation Street, which is still going. 60 plus years later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 19, yeah, 1960 it started. And um, Brian Mosley played a, a shopkeeper called Alf Roberts. So the idea that, you know, Michael Caine would kill the man who played Alf Roberts, uh, obviously years earlier. So that was the immortal thing. We've also got um, Stella Street. Is that Phil Cornwall? It is Phil Cornwell in Stella Street, yes. Because there was, wasn't John Sessions in that as well, Stella Street. Maybe, yeah. I thought it was Dead Ringers, but it's not, no. No, but then again, I bet Michael Caine has been parodied on, on Dead Ringers, mate, at some point. Yeah. The other thing he said in that Parkinson thing was that he, they use him for sat-navs, don't they? Yes, so. and, and you said to me, you are desperate to get a sat-nav with Michael Caine, aren't you now? <laughs> I think I will, yeah, because it will cheer me up while I'm driving, you know. Totally. If I'm going driving to some something depressing like a job. You know? That'd be brilliant because there's that line in The Man Who Would Be King where he says, you are not going to go in front of them. You are not going to go behind them. You're going to go bloody with them. You know yeah. <laughs> you're not going to turn right. Yeah, you're, you're not, not going to turn, turn left. You're, you're going to go, go straight. <laughs> and you're not going to overtake. It's a single carriageway. <laughs> What's the one in the Italian job? He says, you're not sitting in the front and you're not getting an headache. So shut up. <laughs> oh. we, we said towards the second half we'd start dipping into the bloody voices didn't we unfortunately yeah. so yeah. yeah but we won't do the most obvious one because instead we'll play the clip from the Italian mm-hmm. job you ready here Please. we go listeners five four three two one go You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. 
Right. At this point, this is obviously going to be very long. Uh, we need it to be long to do the, the great man some justice. So um, I think we're going to call this the end of part one. We will be back in about 30 seconds <laughs> to record part two. I'm fairly confident part one will come out before Michael's birthday. Part two may not. We'll see how that goes. But if you're listening to part one as you are now, this will be the end of that. So um, what about the list so far, Scott? Do you like to tantalise us with what could be in your top five? Well, if you've been paying attention to a 10 to 6... <laughs> I haven't been paying attention. So. There are some still big movies to come. Yes. Uh, one of which is one of yours. Anyway, we've already mentioned. The Italian yeah. Job is in my top five then, obviously. Yes. But there's four other movies yet to mention. And I would say there's only two of them are in the 60s left as well. That's all I'll say. All right. Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. And we will be back very soon for part two. Goodbye for now. Take care. Bye-bye.